Yes, the job numbers are strong, and GDP did post the fastest growth in almost four years. But Donald Trump has repeatedly claimed that the U.S. is enjoying the best economy in the nation's history. Is it really? This week on Benchmark, we talk with a preeminent economic historian who begs to differ. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. Our guest today is Robert Gordon. He's a professor at Northwestern University and author of the acclaimed 2016 book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Last time we had Professor Gordon on the podcast, which was a couple of months before the 2016 election, we talked about that book. It traces the U.S. economy over the past two centuries. No one can accuse him of thinking small. Gordon concluded, we just don't have the kinds of innovations anymore, like electricity, that can supercharge the economy. Yet at the same time, Gordon made a prescient prediction on our show. I went back to it and he said, I quote, We are entering a period of the next two or three years that I think will go down in history as some of the best years of the American economy, unquote, with the unemployment rate falling and wages going up. Now that the economy has indeed gotten better, let's find out what he thinks. Professor Gordon, welcome back to Benchmark. Glad to be here. So how would you describe the U.S. economy today? Today, the economy is in a very good position, but it's not the best uh, American economy we've ever seen. So the headline numbers of unemployment at 3.9% is the best we've had since the year 2000, 18 years ago, and it's almost the best we've had since the 1960s. We have moderate and low inflation, and I'll correct your uh, comment about GDP growth. Those of us in the know look at the average of the two ways of measuring the total product of our economy. One is the famous GDP, but the other is known as GDI, or gross domestic income. That's adding up everyone's income adjusted for inflation instead of adding up what is produced. And if you look at the average of GDP and GDI over the last two quarters, we've had two consecutive quarters of 3% growth, not 4% growth. And so that is a qualification. And we've had those uh, quarters of 3% growth before over the last six or seven years of the expansion. Professor Gordon, that's why you're on the show and we're just (laughs) journalists. When we talk about trade wars, introduction of tariffs, and also the big fiscal stimulus uh, that was unleashed last year, do those things typically happen when an economy is weak? And if so, what are the consequences of them happening when the economy is strong? Well, the effect of trade wars is to... Uh, raise the price of goods for consumers, raise the price of intermediate raw materials for American companies, materials such as steel and aluminum that have had tariffs imposed on them, thus making American firms less competitive with their foreign rivals and uh, causing them to raise their prices as well. In the end, higher prices will sap consumers' income directly, and it will also raise the inflation rate, which will move 
ever closer the days when the Federal Reserve breaks out of its current moderate restrictive monetary policy and becomes truly restrictive. So those those are all consequences of the tariff policy, which almost nobody approves of except for a few companies that are directly competing with those products that are facing tariffs, such as American steel and aluminum makers. Is the U.S. economy strong enough to withstand the impact from these trade actions, or is it likely to cause significant weakness from where we are now? Because of the fiscal stimulus from the tax cuts, the bipartisan budget deal raising spending is actually more important in terms of the stimulus to economic growth. And also, we've got enormous extra wealth in the economy coming from the 36% increase in the stock market since Election Day, and that's going to trickle into consumer spending. Even though most of it goes to the wealthy, uh, there still is going to be uh, benefits across the board in consumer spending. So the economy has a great deal of momentum now, and I expect that momentum will continue over the next at least four to six quarters uh, without any noticeable slowdown coming from tariffs. Professor, you may be familiar with a book just published by Kai-Fu Lee called AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. He challenges the idea that there are no great innovations at the moment driving things forward. Have you had a chance to look at his book? No, no. And I'm not saying there aren't. There are lots of innovations. But if you look at the way ordinary life is carried out, if you look at robots and your look for robots in your everyday life, uh, you still are seeing restaurants, supermarkets, and doctors' offices, and most of the places you visit in the course of a week or a month are pretty much carrying out their operations as they did ten years ago. So it's not that we don't have a lot of innovations going on, but take the driverless car. That's a lot of innovation, and a lot of companies are struggling to become numero uno in that field, but we still aren't seeing any direct benefits of it. We aren't seeing massive replacement of long-distance truck drivers, for instance, much less inner-city uh, truck drivers. So don't let me, don't ever quote me as saying there's no innovation. What I'm interested in is the impact of innovation on productivity growth. Can, can we go back to our original question and talk about which era of U.S. growth do you think was better than uh, this current era, and why this current era may not be so great as it is? Well, the, the first place to look is at the labor market. The unemployment rate is only one indicator of the health of the labor market. To be unemployed, you've got to look for work. So people who are not looking for work, who've given up on the chances of finding work, are not counted as unemployed. They're counted as not being in the labor force. And the percentage of those prime-aged males and females aged 25 to 54 who've given up looking is substantially higher than it was back in the years of 1999 to 2000 that we're going to use to compare this current economy with. If we look at some other indicators of the labor market, there are some weaknesses there as well. More of today's unemployment is long-term. That is defined as people being out of work 26 weeks or more. And another weakness in the labor market compared to the late 1990s, is that people who are working part-time but would prefer full-time jobs and just can't find them 
are a greater percentage of the labor force than was true back then. So those are three measures of the labor force. Prime age participation, the number of people looking for full-time work who can only find part-time work, and the percentage of the total unemployed who've been unemployed more than 26 weeks. So that's one place I would go to suggest that we do not have the greatest economy of all time. And what about when we look at other eras that may have had better economies? What stands out to you? Well, if you go back to the 1960s, uh, we had a much higher percentage of um, prime-age males working than is true was true even in the late 1990s, much less today. And this brings me to the second major area of weakness. I think a lot of people would go here first uh, for the big contrast with uh, <clears throat> the current economy, and that is the very weak performance of productivity growth. If we look over the last eight years, Productivity growth in the total U.S. economy has only been 0.6% per year. Now, that's only half of the 1.2% that I predicted in my rather pessimistic book. And if you look at just the last four quarters, which is part of the Trump achievement, we have productivity growth in the last four quarters. It's also only about half a percent per year. That contrasts with the late 1990s when productivity was roaring ahead at close to 3%, as it was also in the mid-1960s. And that makes a huge difference because it helps to account for the fact that it's another weakness of the economy, and that is that not only are wages growing slowly, barely above the rate of inflation, but real family median incomes, the income of the uh, person in the middle, is hardly growing at all and has only recently exceeded where we were 11 years ago in 2007. So that whole nexus of productivity growth, real wage growth, and median family income growth is all a very distinct weakness, just no comparison between either the 1960s or the late 1990s and where we stand today. So, Professor, when we talk about the declining participation rate and the demographic challenges behind it, specifically retiring baby boomers. Project forward for us a couple decades. What does that mean in terms of the American labor force? Are we going to see much, much more capital spending on automation, robots, things like that? Well, the first industrial robot was introduced in 1961. We have a lot of robots in our economy. The people seem to think that this is a new deal. But automated machinery operating alongside humans or replacing humans has been part of the store of the history of manufacturing for a long time. In Amazon warehouses, there are robots that bring the shelves to the human packers. And inevitably, uh, machinery will be developed and robot-like uh, human hands uh, that pick out the products to be sent to the Amazon customers will gradually replace those workers. But this has been true since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th century. Uh, and we've always found new things for people to do. Uh, we're not going to have mass unemployment as a result of the gradual introduction of not just robots, but also artificial intelligence.
Professor, looking more at the near term, you've just come back from a conference of economists where they released a poll showing that about half of their members expected a recession to begin in the United States uh, in 2020, and even a few said it might even begin before that. Where do you stand on when the next recession will happen? Well, the momentum in the economy, uh, the forward momentum in the economy growing strongly is certainly in place for the next four to six quarters, and that takes us through the fall of 2019. At that point, we begin to lose the underpinnings of fiscal stimulus because the bipartisan budget deal that raised spending by $300 billion in the two years, 2018 and 2019, is going to be eliminated. And certainly, if the Democrats uh, regain control of the House, we're not going to see any further fiscal stimulus uh, because the uh, parties will be at loggerheads between the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. So we're going to lose the fiscal stimulus. Also, stock market valuations are very high now, and even without predicting a major decline in the stock market, we're going to have far less growth in the stock market valuations over the next two years than we have had over the last 18 months, and that's going to take away another underpinning of this supercharged growth that we're enjoying now. Uh, So without those underpinnings that have boosted growth this year, we would expect growth to go back to 2%. Where I think the real Achilles heel of the economy is, I think that the Fed is much too sanguine in forecasting that inflation is going to remain at only 2 or 2.1% through the next three years. That's their official forecast, and many economists just find that unbelievable. Unemployment is going to continue to fall down to 35 and even 3%. It may go below where it was in the best years of the 1960s. And we are going to have an increasing pressure of labor shortages on wages and thus on prices. We just heard uh, today that Amazon is guaranteeing that everyone in its warehouses is going to be making $15 an hour or more, which is double the federal minimum wage. We just uh, heard that New York City airports are going to guarantee all employees a wage of $19 an hour. Uh, These are wages that we haven't seen in this country yet. And they're bound to be pushing up on prices. So you've got prices going up because of labor shortages, tariffs, higher minimum wages, and that's bound to shake up the Fed. I think the financial markets are going to react to the inflation even before the Fed does. And we're going to see a turnaround with higher 10-year bond rates and lower stock prices going into 2019 and the fall of 2019. I don't see a financial crisis coming. I see a gradual slowing down, and it's very possible that any recession that occurs uh, will be relatively mild, nothing like 2007 to 2009. Just a recession, not a great one. No, and I don't see the very common likening, oh, the next recession and financial crisis. We've had a lot of recessions without financial crises. We had no financial crises between 1929 and 2008. So I don't see where the next recession needs to lead to a financial crisis. We have a much better capitalized banking system uh, than we did then. We have no housing bubble. We do not have a dot-com investment bubble. Stock market valuations are much less overheated than they were in 1999 and 2000. 
Just one final note, Professor, the revamped US-Canada-Mexico trade accord, formerly called NAFTA, now to be called USMCA. When we look at the broad sweep of the continent's economic history, how significant is this? Oh, I think the the changes that are made in the new NAFTA compared to the old NAFTA are minor enough that we can almost forget about them. There is this important concession the Canadians made on dairy farmers, but that's such a small part of their economy and our economy. That's more important for Canadian political outcomes than it is for any evolution of the American economy. And you have that important proviso in the deal between the United States and Mexico, that about a third of the value of automobiles sold in the United States has to be manufactured by workers making $16 an hour, which is unlikely to cause wages to grow that much in Mexico because they're only around $3 an hour, but will cause American manufacturers to abide by that agreement to shift the making of some kinds of parts back into the United States, which will be a good thing for our economy. So I see it as all in all a positive. We escaped a big trade war between the United States and Canada, and now we're left with a big trade war between the U.S. and China. Do you think that instead of globalization, Professor, we're headed towards some sort of form of muscular regionalism? I think that's way too wild a generalization. After all, we had the nations besides the United States that were in the Trans-Pacific Partnership that have vowed to go ahead with it. We have the European Union holding together with the exception of Brexit. And we've got the uh, the push by China to invest in places ranging from Pakistan to East Africa. All of those are elements of what you would call continued globalization. It's just in another phase. That's right. But the the trade war that the administration has started, particularly with China, is going to have a modest but noticeable effects on U.S. inflation. And that's the real Achilles heel of this recovery. What financial markets are going to do when they see more inflation and what the Fed is going to do when it sees more inflation. Professor Robert Gordon of Northwestern University, this has been informative, educational, and enlightening as always. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Okay, it was my pleasure. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. Head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 